you're one of the greatest con men of all time. You're the daddy of them all. But what does it take to be a good con man? Quiet down, people. My name is Mr. Abagnale. That's Abagnale, not Abagnale, not Abagnale, but Abagnale. You have engineered some extraordinary escapes. Tell us about one of them. Yeah, I had a case where the police had my hotel room surrounded in Atlanta. Uh, I went out the back door and I had a suit on. As I stepped out the back door, two officers came around the corner and they said, Hey, you, hold it. And I just turned around to him and said, My name is Davis, FBI. And they said, Oh, excuse me, sir. And I sent him around back front. <laughs> I had no fear of being caught because of my being an adolescent. I didn't think about the consequences. You know, when I sat in front of a bank with a check in New York, I didn't say to myself, I'm going to go in the bank and here's the plan. If they say this, I'll say this. If they do this, I'll do it. I just went in and did it. Hi, Frank. Hey, Frank. There we go. Thanks so much for uh, making the time. Sure. really appreciate it. I recall from your addresses to the Advertising Week audiences, in New York and in London, you talked a lot about the influence of your father, who's also your namesake. Yeah, my dad, um, I, I think my dad was a, a, a big influence on me. I had a very close relationship with my dad. Uh, he was kind of a self-made man. He, uh, After the war, he opened a stationery store in Manhattan on the corner of 42nd and Madi- uh, 40th and Madison, I'm sorry, called back then called Gramercy Stationery. It later became Airline Stationery, and now I think it's a, a bank. Uh, but uh, I, my dad was somebody who I kind of admired. He was always extremely well-dressed. He was well-spoken. Um, so I kind of uh, took after my dad in that way. I've kind of followed him and his mannerisms and the way he presented himself and the way he dressed and et cetera. And did you think he was portrayed well? Did you, when the, in the film, that must be both difficult. And I know you had a cameo in Catch Me If You Can. But do you, do you think the casting of your dad and Christopher Walken and, and your mom, Paulette, did you think that they got it pretty right? Well, you know, I think they did on my mom. No question about that. I think Christopher Walken, who I'm a huge fan, is an amazing actor. He did a tremendous job uh, portraying my dad. He was nominated for the Academy Award for that film and the Best Supporting Actor. The only thing I thought, you know, and I didn't have a lot of issues with Steven Spielberg's portrayal of my life, but the one thing I never really understood is the way he kind of showed my dad as being more of a little bit of a a con man himself. And I never really saw my dad that way. And on the contrary, I saw my dad uh, the opposite way. He, you know, he was very, he didn't, believe that you should spend money you don't have. He was very conservative in the way he thought, and uh, he certainly would have never condoned any of the things I was doing if he actually knew I was doing them. So, you know, in real life, and uh, I never saw my dad after I ran away from home at 16 in the movie, uh, they had me going back to see my dad, and, and Steven Spielberg felt that was important for the audience to know the relationship that I had with him. But I never really saw my dad that way. And when I asked Steven Spielberg why he portrayed him uh, that way, he never really gave me a good answer to that that que- uh, that question. So uh, I guess maybe he saw my dad that way. I I didn't see my dad that way. Hmm. So he took he took a little license. Yes. 
And you said you never saw your dad after you ran away from home. Your years from 15, 16 to roughly 19 were, uh, shall we say, incredibly rich. Uh, And I guess it it all began with uh, a gasoline credit card that you had just to try to get some extra money to go out and date girls. Yeah, you know, I always, from a very young age, was always looking for loopholes and always uh, saw things other people didn't see and thought of things that other people didn't think about. So one of the things is my dad allowed me to buy this 1952 Ford, and um, I was 16 years old and just gotten my junior driver's license, and uh, he he said, I'll give you a gas credit card. It was a, I'll never forget, it was a mobile credit card, and he said, you can use this, but you're responsible for the bill. And I had a part-time job during the summer, so he said, as long as you pay your own gas bills. Well, then after a couple of months, my father got a bill from mobile for a couple of thousand dollars. Uh, and of course, Mobile contacted my dad and said, we don't understand what's going on here. We don't understand how you could have a bill this high. There have been numerous purchases of tires and batteries, and uh, we don't understand how this happened. So my father explained, I don't know either. My son has that card. And I remember they said to my dad, if you let us talk to your son, you know, we're, we're willing to let this uh, these charges go, but we want to know what's going on. So my dad made me sit down with the people from mobile and they basically I said to them look I go in the gas station and I say to the gas station owner I'd like to buy these four tires so he says great and he takes them down off the rack I give him the credit card he looks in the book to see if the number is a stolen card or anything or he might call it in but either way when he's done he said okay the tires are hundred and fifty dollars I said well look you know what I'll do I'll sell you these tires back for fifty dollars so you'll get 150 from mobile, and you'll, you'll make a profit, and I'll get the $50. And everybody did it. I never had one gas station owner say to me, I'm not doing that. They said, yeah, sure. And that was one of my first things. Oh, my gosh. So I want to talk about, uh, I'm sure, what is the great joy in your life, your uh, wife, Kelly, who you've been married to for so long, and your three boys. Um, and I don't want to retell the whole catch me if you can story. I think everybody has seen it and, and read your books. And, and so, but when you look back on that period, you know, that 16 to 19, give or take, is there one particular memory, one particular incident that comes into your mind that you might, you know, give yourself a little wry smile every now and then? Yeah, I think, you know, I I did so many things that were just because they were an opportunity. You know, for example, even the pilot, I had no desire to be a pilot or or get on board planes, but I I was coming down 42nd Street in front of what used to be the Commodore Hotel, and I saw this airline crew from Eastern Airlines step out, and I thought to myself, wow, if I could get one of these uniforms, then I could go in these banks as a pilot. It would be so much easier to try cashing a check than me going in there just as me to cash a check. And, you know, I was able to obtain the uniform, and then I found it was like night and day. I'd walk in the bank. They immediately said, certainly we can cash your check. And I realized the power of that uniform. And then one day I was out at the TWA ticket counter at JFK, which Steven Spielberg did a good job of portraying this part, and I basically said, you know, I'd like to buy a ticket. I'm going here. And the girl said, well, are you buying or are you riding? I said, I don't understand. Are you buying the ticket or are you going to ride the jump seat? I said, well, no, I'll ride the jump seat. And then I realized that I could fly all over the world for free by 
riding in the jump seat. Everything I did was more of the opportunist. It wasn't. I never premeditated anything. It was just that I fell in place and saw something. For example, I'd gone into a bank in Chicago to open a checking account. And back then, you could open an account with $100. And I gave her the phony Pan Am ID I had. And the new accounts person said to me, okay, we'll be sending you your printed checks in about two weeks. Um, and, I, and you'll get those with your account number and printed information, deposit slips, etc. So being young and inquisitive, I said, well, let me ask you this. What if I wish to make a deposit tomorrow? Oh, not a tough problem. You see the table in the lobby with all the forms on it. Just go over there and help yourself to a blank deposit slip and then write your account number and I just gave you and use those to get your printed ones. So I walked over and I took a stack of them and I went back and I kept sitting in my hotel room and saying to myself, I wonder if this would work. So I went out and bought what was then called a Burroughs 1000 magnetic encoder. It looked like a big green calculating machine. And I basically encoded my account number they had signed to me from the bank. And then I went back to the bank the next day and put them on the shelf. And everyone who came in put their money directly in my account. So, I mean, I didn't know it would work, but it was things like that that I, that I did. And when you went to ostensibly – the money, there was like $40,000 in their account. Oh, my gosh. So you went initially back to that airline counter to buy a ticket. She offered you a free seat. I guess the pilots referred to as deadheading. And, right, and I picked up on that. And you, you know, that's what I mean. I was amazing. this young kid who just saw these opportunities, you know. And you know, same way when I went to Atlanta to be a, the, the 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 doctor, I didn't go to Atlanta say I'm going to go there and impersonate a doctor and work in a hospital. I moved into Atlanta and I moved into this singles complex. And on the application, it asked occupation, so I didn't want to write airline pilot because they were looking for me posing as a pilot, and I had all these questions, supervisor's name, supervisor's phone number. So I just casually said to the apartment manager, well, actually, I'm a doctor. Oh, really? Well, what type of doctor are you? And I said, well, I'm a medical doctor, but I'm not practicing medicine right now. I left my practice out in California to come to Atlanta to invest in some real estate. Oh, how interesting. Well, what type of medical doctor? And because it was a singles complex, I said I was a pediatrician. So I moved in, and, and then the next thing you know, I meet a real pediatrician who lives there, and he starts talking to me. So I find myself st- studying a little bit to learn how to have a conversation with this guy. Then one day he invites me up to his hospital, and I meet uh, people on the staff and talk to people and go out to dinner one night with people. And then one night he says to me, look, my administrator asked if you would think about coming to cover a shift for a couple of weeks at the hospital. Our, our supervisor on the night shift, the doctor had a death in his family, he's returning to the West Coast, and he'd love for you to come just in administrative capacity and, and supervise the shift. I said, oh, no, I can't, I can't do that. Why not? Well, I'm not licensed to practice medicine in Georgia, and I don't want to go through all the red tape. No, 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 no red tape. They just issue a temporary certificate, and you just work as an administrative supervisor. And so I did it to see if I could get away with it. I think I was always smart enough to realize that I could only get away with it for a short time. I was smart enough to know you're not going to get away with this uh, forever. And I think you know, people say you were brilliant. I wasn't brilliant. I was a, I was a, a youngster, and I had I had no fear of being caught because of my being an adolescent. I didn't think about the consequences. You know, when I wa- sat in front of a bank with a check in New York, I didn't say to myself, "I'm going to go in the bank, and here's the plan. If they say this, I'll say this. If they do this, I'll do." I just went in and did it. 
I always believed had I been a little older, had I been 22 or 25 and went out to do those things, I would have never done half of them because I would have thought and rationalized I'd never get away with it. But because I was so young, I really had no fear of that or the consequences. And and Frank, you said that even at 15 with that mobile credit card that you were always sort of seeing the angles. Do you remember even earlier than that? Where did that come from? Was that just something that was innate? Uh, where did that come from? I think that was just something innate in me that I saw things, you know, I used to kid my dad and say to him, you see those people standing on the corner over there, they're selling drugs. He goes, well, how do you know that? Cause I can tell what they're doing. I was maybe 14 years old or I'd say to him, you see that guy on the corner, uh, that's a police detective. Well, how would you know that? I said, well, he's got handcuffs on his uh, his tie, and then he's got these shoes on. I said, I bet any amount of money he's a police detective. That was just the way I thought as as a young kid. And when I was real young, I just thought I was very observant, and I saw things that other people didn't see. And from Bronxville to New Rochelle, your life as a kid and a teenager like any other kid? Yeah, I think so. And uh, though I always enjoyed the company of older people, for example, I, if my dad and mom had people over that were their age, instead of me being outside playing with their kids, I was inside listening to them talk. I always was more interested in being around adults than I was interested in being around kids my age. Okay, interesting. And Frank, you talked about, you know, knowing to get in and out relatively quickly that you could carry things on for just so long. I know you were once in a plane and they offered you the opportunity to fly the plane at 30,000 feet and you... Yeah, now actually what happened was it was a BOAC, now British Airways flight, and uh, I was flying uh, from New York to London and I was riding uh, basically in the jump seat. And uh, at some point, uh, after we were above 35,000 feet, the captain said, I'm going back to uh, get a coffee. Uh, Would you go ahead and take my seat? Well, I was stunned by that. And I thought to myself, you know, what do I do? So I I basically slipped into the seat and put the seatbelt on. But I knew the co-pilot was there, and I knew the flight engineer was there. And I was prepared had the co-pilot said, well, you know what? I think I'm going to go back and uh, go to use the restroom. I would have said, no, wait, I I have to tell you that I'm not a pilot. And I would have confessed everything, but that didn't happen. Oh, my goodness. So let's jump ahead. You've had an an incredible career, um, which I guess the movie ends with the beginning of that career. Uh, Let's get into that. But let's also talk about the character... Uh, played by Tom Hanks as Carl Hanratty in the film, but in real life, it was an agent named Joseph Shea. Yeah. And you and he had quite a relationship. Yeah, Joe Shea was a wonderful man, and he was an Irish man from Boston. He had a kind of an Irish accent, and um, he was much became a father figure to me. He and I were friends for 30 years. I watched his kids grow up. Uh, he and I were very close. Uh, he... I think he realized when he was chasing me and came to realize I was just a kid, his whole demeanor about chasing me kind of changed and his father figure came on and uh, he was just a great guy. And I, I basically, you know, I've written several books and one of the books I wrote on identity theft called Stealing Your Life, I dedicated that book to him. He passed away about 
five years ago, but he was 88. He lived a great life, and he got to be on the set during the making of the film, so he got to work with Tom Hanks, and that was a great thrill for him. But he was uh, he was a wonderful man and someone who took an interest in me and probably had a lot to do with me uh, turning my life around. And as did your wife, Kelly. Yes. You know, people are fascinated by what I did 50 years ago as a teenage boy, but I have to tell you, next month I'll be 72, and when I wake up in the morning, I don't really think about the things I did when I was a teenage boy, though I know people are fascinated by it. What fascinates me and is unbelievable, and I wake up my every day thinking I can't believe it, is that I did all those things. I went to prison. I paid my debt. When I was 26, the FBI took me out of prison. I went to work with the FBI on a temporary basis until I finished my parole. And I have been with the FBI now for 44 years, for four decades. I've gotten the opportunity to teach at the FBI Academy. I've gotten to work with some of the largest Fortune 500 companies in the world, most of the major banks in the world. I developed a lot of print technology that went into papers and checks and driver's licenses, not only in this country, but abroad as well. And over the last 20 years, I've spent most of my career dealing with cyber-related crimes. So as crime changed, I've changed and had to learn a lot. But most of all, you know, 43 years ago, I met my wife on an undercover assignment. I didn't have a dime to my name. I fell in love with her. I told her everything that happened in my life. Um, she accepted me. She married me against the wishes of her parents. She gave me three wonderful sons. My oldest boy has been in the FBI. He is an agent in the Bureau for 14 years now. He is the unit chief over our crisis negotiations unit out of Quantico, Virginia. Uh, my middle son and his wife own a chain of stores. My youngest boy develops uh, video games. He's worked senior producer on the game Doom, celebrating their 25th anniversary. Got five grandchildren. Uh, that's what I look at. I cannot believe that I did those things and where my life ended up. But I believe that because I live in an amazing country where you can make mistakes, pay your debt back to society, and if you, if you really want to change your life, you can do that. And I think that's what's the best thing about America. Sure is. And the chance to work with your son, Scott, at the FBI yeah, must, be incredibly, must be incredibly proud. Absolutely. And I just got to do an interview with him. I do a podcast for AARP. Uh, I actually just wrote a book I was commissioned to write for them that was dealing with scams against the elderly. And I do a podcast out of Washington, D.C., uh, called The Perfect Scam, and I had him on with me, and that was a great thrill because he was uh, speaking about virtual kidnappings and how people should do when they find themselves in those situations. But having the opportunity to go and uh, have him on the radio with me was, was uh, great, too. Fantastic. So the word trust in our business, the advertising and media business, the definition has really evolved. You know, when right. you and I, when you and I were kids, it used to be the old, you know, can you trust your advertising? Right. Now, because of technology and data and, and the amount of information that, you know, is being uh, taken from us willingly, um, every time we go onto a site, we are, you know, when we accept terms and conditions, I don't know that anyone's ever read the 18 paragraphs in a two point font, you know, below it, whether it's buying a, a plane ticket or, or, uh, you know, making a restaurant reservation. 
Tell us how the world of trust has changed in your world, and I know that you are knee-deep in the whole cybersecurity ecosystem. Yeah, fraud is, uh, is never fails to astound me. We have almost a trillion dollars in fraud every year in the United States, and that's just fraud. It has nothing to do with burglary, robbery, theft of property or drugs, narcotic, just white-collar-related fraud. And there are so many people now that uh, really have lost this whole concept of ethics and character. You know, uh, back when we were younger, people taught their children ethics at home. They taught them ethics in school. Today, they don't teach ethics at home. They don't teach it in school because the teacher would be accused of teaching morality. Uh, there are very few colleges that have a course on ethics. Uh, my three sons all went to graduate school, but only the oldest one went to law school, had a had a course on ethics. Uh, they go out into the business world. There's no the companies don't really have a, a program to get, bring ethics into their employees. The importance of character in their employees. They may put an annual report in the back cover of their uh, excuse me a, a code of ethics in the back cover of their annual report, but nobody really instills it in their employees. So I think we live in a day today where people are more because they have that lack of ethics and character in their makeup. They're more willing to cheat somebody as long as it, it makes them whole or makes them better, and they're willing to bend the rules as long as it makes them better. And I think today you have to be a little smarter business person, and you have to be a little smarter consumer uh, than you did, say, 25 years ago. And when you were just talking about contracts, one of the things I mentioned to people all the time, there was an app that came out called FaceApp, which basically about a year ago said, you sign up for this app and you show me a picture of you at 30, then I'll show you what you look like at 40 and what you'll look like at 60. 80 million Americans signed up for that app. And they scrolled through all of the contract on their computer or their phone and just said, I agree, because it was free. But when you go back and you read it, as I have done, and you see that it's a Russian app, you're giving them total permission to use your face, your, your biometrics, all your information, uh, people just didn't bother reading that. Now the Russians have the biometrics and the images of 80 million Americans, not only what they look like now, but what they'll look like 10, 20 years from now. So I think it's the same thing today. You know, people don't pay a lot of attention, don't take the time to read the fine print. And the people on the other side of that know that. So they, because of their lack of ethics in the business world, they basically put things in there that would behoove them and, and people get taken all the time. So knowing what you know, looking back at the 2016 election, we all know about Cambridge Analytica. Um, what was your take on what happened then and what's your take on what will happen in 2020? Well, you know, I don't trust the, the whole election system. I don't trust. First of all, we're dealing with uh, every state, every county, every city government having a different voting system. Uh, most of those systems are very easy to defeat, very easy to intrude, uh, very easy to breach. Um, so I don't have a lot of trust in the the system. And then you add to that the people that have influenced the system from outside our country, the people inside the system who know they can manipulate the system. So it's very hard to believe some of the data that uh, that comes out of the election cycle uh, because I really don't trust why we have no consistency uh, with one set of systems that work between all 50 states and are used for both county, state, city government. Uh, we don't do that. So we make it easy for people to manipulate us, for people to defraud us. 
we have all of this social media now that people believe everything they see on social media is the truth. We're seeing that with this virus. And people are just believe that what they see on Facebook or on social media is the truth. So when you, when you control the minds of two, pil- two billion people and what they read and what they see, uh, you know, you're going down a very dangerous road. And I think uh, we're down that road now. So as uh, Americans, whether you're Democrat or Republican, what advice would you give? What, what, what should we as citizens be doing to try to protect ourselves? Uh, well, one, we first of all, we need to protect our own selves. We have to be a little smarter about protecting ourselves. You know, when ARP asked me to write this book, Scam Me If You Can, which was published by Random House, I was commissioned to write it. So all the proceeds and the royalties go to AARP. But I looked at every single scam there was, and ARP said to me, I want you to look at scams against millennials. I want you to look at scams against seniors. I want you to look at scams against investment bankers, Bitcoin, cyber currency. And I did just that. One, I was amazed when I finished writing the book that millennials were scammed more often than seniors, but seniors lost more money. And what I found is that most people are basically honest. And because they're honest, they don't have a deceptive mind. So when they get that phone call or they get that email, they believe it to be the truth unless someone has taught them otherwise. And this is why I've always believed that education is the most powerful tool to fighting crime. So whether I'm training training an FBI agent or I'm training a banker, uh, I'm basically simply saying to them, here's how these scams work. This is how you recognize the red flags. And when you see them, uh, you'll know them. But you have to give people those those tools. And uh, we do a very poor job of, of doing that in, in this country. And that's one of the reasons that people fall for all of these scams. But let's give AARP credit for trying to help their own members uh, and protect them. Yeah, AARP did an amazing job. About five years ago, they contacted me and said that they had sent a survey out. You know, they have a little under 38 million members. They're the largest organization in the world. And they basically said, we surveyed our members, and we thought they, and asked them what are the things they were concerned about. We assumed they'd come back and say health care and Medicare and and came back and said they were worried about being defrauded, having their identity stolen. So they came to me and said, we'd like you to work with us in developing training programs and educational materials to help them do that. And I've been doing that for five years. I'm their ambassador to their brand, which deals with uh, all the issues involving fraud. And that was the purpose of writing the book. But they were concerned about everybody, not just seniors. And uh, and they understand the importance of educating and getting that message to the people so they understand when these scams are being perpetrated against them. So for uh, those, our, our listeners on Great Minds, if there were one or two things that every one of us should do to better protect ourselves, what would those things be? Okay, first of all, if you are on social media, and I'm not on any social media, but if you tell me on Facebook where you were born and your date of birth, that's 98% of me stealing your identity. That's what we refer to the keys of your identity. So you never want to tell someone on Facebook where you were born and your date of birth. As of why? E- why? Peel a layer because off the Because those are the Tell two us why. pieces of information I need to find everything else out about you. If I know those two keys, all the rest I can find out by just simply doing simple research. There, so I need tools to start or what we refer to as keys to start that. 
And those are one of the best keys that people, unfortunately, give away all the time on uh, social media. The second thing is, up until a year ago, only eight states allowed you to freeze your credit. All the other states required you pay a fee. And that was $10 to freeze it, $15 to unfreeze it, $10 to freeze it back again. That was multiplied by three times because we have three credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, TransUnion. So that was costly and for seniors, extremely complicated. So Congress passed a law prohibiting credit bureaus from charging you a fee to freeze your credit, the law recognizing that you have the right to keep your information private. So under the new law now, anyone can freeze their credit. All you have to do is go to the Google box on your computer and type in, how do I freeze my credit? Once you freeze it, it's frozen. Nobody can see it. You can unfreeze it, freeze it a million times. There's no cost. You have to be 16 years of age or older. So I tell everyone, freeze your credit, especially older folks like seniors where I say, look, you're 76 years old. You own your house. You own your cars. You have your credit cards. You're not out trying to get credit. Freeze your credit. And even if you're a younger person and you're, you froze your credit, you apply for buy an automobile, you unfreeze it to the car dealer so you can get a car loan, but then you freeze it back. So I tell everybody to absolutely freeze your credit in today's environment. The third thing is be very careful when you go out and write a check today, and a lot of people still write checks. If I go to the grocery store and write a $9 check and give it to the clerk, on the check is my name and address and phone number, my bank's name and address, my account number at that bank, that's your wiring instructions, my signature on the signature card at the bank, and then the clerk has written on the front of the check my driver's license number and my date of birth. I don't get the check back. We live in truncation. I get an image of the check. The check goes to the retailer for 65 days, and then the retailer sends it out to be destroyed. Anyone who would see the face of that check could draft on my account. And God forbid you went in and wrote the check off your money market account, your wealth management account, your private banking account, where you have a lot of funds in that account. And this is why we refer to it as account takeover, because the criminal simply gets that information from the check and then takes over your account. And finally, I don't own a debit card. I've never owned a debit card, never allowed my sons to own one to this day. A long time ago, I asked myself a simple question. What is the safest form of payment in the United States? And the answer to that question was credit card. Not credit debit, credit card. Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover Card. Every day of my life, literally, I spend the credit card company's money. I don't spend my money. My money sits in a money market account and it earns interest, nobody knows where it is. I go to the grocery store, I give them a credit card. I go to the dry cleaner, I give them my credit card. I get on the plane, I give them my credit card. Now, I will do everything in my power to make sure no one gets my number. But if they do, and tomorrow they charge $1 million on my credit card, by federal law, my liability is zero. I have no liability. When I pay the bill, whether I pay the minimum due or I pay the full amount, my credit score goes up. So I'm building credit in my name. When you use your debit card, every time you reach for it, you're exposing the money in your account. They're stealing the money out of your account. In every post-investigation of every breach that occurred in the last 15 years in a retail environment, going back to TJ Maxx and Target and Home Depot, every consumer that was interviewed simply said, well, no, I was in the store, but I used my Visa credit card. So the next day they canceled my card, and two days later they sent me a new card, and that's all I know about it. 
Oh, well, no, I was in there and I used my debit card off my credit union. They took $3,000 out of my checking account, and I had to wait uh, for a period of three months before I ever got my money back while they said they were investigating. So my thing is to always just use simply a credit card. The same way I tell young people who are using Vimo and services like that, if you're going to use those services, back them by a credit card. Do not back them with a debit card. And I understand there are a lot of people who are not good about handling their money. Uh, they probably would need to stick with a debit card. But if you're good about handling your money, you're much better off having a credit card and you build credit in your name. A lot of these young people today go to school for four years of college. They only use a debit card. They get graduate. They get a good job. They go to rent an apartment and the manager says, son, you don't have any credit. You don't even have a credit file with the credit bureau. I can't give you a lease. Your, your parents will have to co-sign the lease. So I had three sons, and when they went off to college, I said to them, I'm not giving you a debit card. I've actually applied for a credit card in your name. So it's your card. The only thing is you have no credit, so I guaranteed it, which means that, one, the bills come to me, and I'm responsible for the bill. So if you spend a lot of time in the bar, I'll know it. Two, I set the limit on the card. So whatever I think you need to spend each month, that'll be the limit of the card. And third, every month when I pay the bill, it'll go on your credit. So by the time you come out of college, you should be looking at a credit score of about 800. You want to buy a car? You want to buy a house? You want to rent a condo? Uh, you can do that without me. And all three did come out with great credit scores. And one of the best things you can do today is to teach your kids the importance of credit. Credit is not what it was 20, 30 years ago when it was a question, do I get the house, do I get the car? Everything today is based on your credit. You apply for a job, they check your credit. You apply for auto insurance, they check your credit and base the rate. Apply for life insurance, they check your credit. Everything comes down to your credit. So it's very important to teach young people the importance of building credit in their name and keeping good credit. Frank, let's wind down. I'm going to ask you one just to, to go back. And, and I loved hearing the story of when you and Kelly met and hearing about Scott, Chris, and Sean. Give us, there are so many wonderful stories about you. I went back and watched some of the old clips when you were on The Tonight Show with George Carlin. Give us, give us one that is a story that's out there that's not true. And give us one that we don't know. That might be true. Um, you know, I think I think basically uh, I think Steven Spielberg did a, Steven Spielberg did an amazing job of telling the story. He he loved the redemption side of the story, and that's why he wanted the world to know it. It was the first time he had made a movie about a real person living, and uh, he had owned the rights for many many years. And when Barbara Walters asked him why he waited so long to make the movie, he said, "I wanted to see what the real Frank Abagnale did with his life." before I immortalized him on film. I think the biggest thing is that people only know me from the movie Catch Me If You Can. You can tell that by Twitter. I'm not on social media, but there are thousands and thousands of people on Twitter with the name Frank Abagnale, and they use my name. And, of course, there are a lot of people on there that talk about the movie and how much they love the movie, but they have no concept of what happened to my life after the movie. That was just me till the age of 21. But then coming out of prison at 26, they have no idea that I have spent 44 years working with my government, that I've developed great technology both in print and paper and now with software. 
to help uh, banks detect fraud. And the fact that I've been married to my one and only wife for 43 years, that I brought three wonderful sons into the world, now five grandchildren, uh, that's what I wish people knew more about me. Very little is written. So when people write about me, they write a lot about what I did and how I did it because they're fascinated by it. But they really very rarely ever cover about what happened to my life after that. And um, I think that's the one thing that's always missing from the story. Well, listen, it's a quintessential American story of redemption and a life well lived. Um, And to have heard you speak and one of our young guys who's with us now was a runner with a microphone when you spoke at the British Academy of Film, Television, Arts with us in London in 2013, 2014. And the impression that you make upon those who are fortunate enough to hear you speak um, and who hear not just the stories of 50 years ago, but the stories of the last 50 are incredibly inspirational. And uh, I can't thank you enough. I appreciate that. Very much, Frank, last question, Frank, and then we'll let you go. So on Great Minds, we love to ask all of our guests, what are the great minds that you look to that inspire you? And it could be past or present. Anyone that comes to mind? Well, thank you for asking me that question. You know, in the hundreds of interviews I've done around the world over the last 40 years, nobody's ever asked me that question. And the truth is, without hesitation, I have to say my wife, Kelly. I have been married to her for 43 years. Please understand that I met her in Houston, Texas. When I didn't have a dime to my name, I had been out of prison for a very short time. When I told her everything about me and who I was uh, against the wishes of her parents, she married me because she knew, I think, that I loved her. But most of all, she saw something in me that a lot of people didn't see, and she knew that I could do a lot of good things with my life. I was very impressed with my wife at the time because she came from a family, didn't have a lot of money. She worked from the time she was 16 years old to pay her way through college and ended up getting her master's degree. She paid for that all by herself, no loans. Uh, She bought her first car. She paid her own car off by herself. She was the most honest person I had ever met, and I was so amazed by her ethics. And in 43 years I've been married to her, I've never known her to tell a lie or even try to tell a white lie. She's just been an extremely honest person. And that's so much uh, wore off on me. And then, of course, brought me three wonderful boys into the world. And, you know, I had to travel a lot in my life. I've had to travel three days on average every week. I've had to go overseas sometimes for three and four weeks. But she made sure that she took care of my boys, that she instilled in them about character and ethics and the importance of being honest in everything they did. And they turned out to be just wonderful sons. So I can't imagine anyone in my life who's been more of an influence on me, who has helped me in my life. And I am where I am today without a shadow of a doubt because of the love of a woman and the love of my wife and the faith she had in me and the partnership we've had for the last 43 years. Fantastic. Well, Frank, many, many more years of good health to you and your family, and thank you so much for joining us on Great Minds today. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Okay, buddy. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com.
Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy. 